Welcome back to season 10 of the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based out of the University of Virginia. And each week, we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives and international politics. We are sponsored by the UVA International Relations Organization. I'm your host, AJ Lorienti. Today, we'll be discussing Virginia Governor Youngkin's education policy platform. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with first-year intended public policy major, Apal Upadhyay. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So let's get in to some of the questions. The first question I've got for you today um, really relates to a recent event, which is that the Youngkin administration um, released their model 2022 policies. Um, how do these policies differ from last year's model policies? And what are the key differences in protections offered to LGBTQ plus students in particular? So first and foremost, the model 22 policies are the directives from the Virginia Department of Education for school districts inside the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so these model 2022 policies are differed from the model 2021 ones because of key differences in approach of LGBTQ plus students in schools and what rights they have. One key aspect of the policies that I spoke about with Spencer Hayderi, a UVA third-year law student, was um, the, the legality of name changes in schools. So for example, the Model 22 policies, which recently came out in late October of this year, states that the parents of a child who wants to use a different name in school, quote, can only be changed his or her name upon the application of a parent. So in the interview, uh, Spencer Hayderi touched that this specific statement uh, also applies to cis students besides transgender students, even though it was originally meant to target transgender students. My name is Spencer Hayderi. I'm a third year law student at the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm also the uh, legal and policy director for the Virginia Collegiate Queer Collective. That's a statewide umbrella organization for queer groups at colleges and universities throughout the Commonwealth. So there's quite a few differences between the 2021 model policies, which were very trans-inclusive and resulted in Virginia being uh, a leader throughout the nation in terms of trans students' rights. And now the current 2022 model policies, which are under review and will likely become effective in some form on November 27th. And then the other thing that they define is transgender student, and that definition is very concerning. Because how they define it is it centers on the parent's um, recognition um, of, of a trans student being trans. So it takes the power of gender identity away from trans students. And further, it, it states that it's based on the trans student's belief that they are trans, which reinforces the false narrative that being trans or being queer in general is a choice. But the new policies... They take that power completely away from trans students and they leave it up to the determination of the parents. So one example of how these policies would apply to cis students in schools is that if a student wants to be referred to their middle name instead of their first name, 
The school won't be allowed to do that without receiving explicit permission from a parent. And even so, in the policy, it outlines that even if a parent does give permission, uh, the other parent can uh, contest that decision. This highlights the sort of the removal of autonomy from students in schools. In the 2021 model policies, you could use names and pronouns outside of what's reflected on your school record and other documents by request of either the parent or the student, but now it's only the determination of the parent. And um, yeah, that's, it. again, it takes the power away from the student. The old model policies required you to respect students' gender identity in accessing these spaces. Um, and I think probably the biggest change between the two model policies is that the old ones were based in science and evidence, and the new model policies just don't follow that model whatsoever. Moving on to our next question, how do you think Youngkin's campaign promises, specifically surrounding um, parents and their children's education, have impacted the policies and other legislation put forward by the Youngkin administration? So one of the key ways that uh, the Youngkin campaign did succeed in the uh, gubernatorial election was that his team focused on, decided to focus on three big issues. Uh, but when Terry McAuliffe, the uh, prospective Democratic candidate during the race, uh, met messed up and had a gaffe about parents' control in schools, um, his campaign message totally shifted onto education and the assertion of parental control in education in a period of uncertainty uh, with schools because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so referring back to your question, so his campaign promises to assert parental control in schools is something that we see with these Model 22 policies specifically. And so this appeal to parents is part of his campaign promise to return control of parents in the K-12 system, especially since in a time of different anxieties surrounding what children are taught in schools. This changes, these changes that are happening in the K-12 school system. Do you think the trend we're seeing with an increased number of challenged books in the K-12 school system um, was a precursor to Youngkin's 2022 model policies? I think it definitely is. Uh, it definitely has been, and it's it was a precursor to the 2022 model policies because, as I mentioned before, the there has always been, for example, these anxieties with, with LGBTQ plus student rights in schools can be seen in the trend of challenged books in the past 10 or 12 years. And so, for example, the the challenge the top challenge book according to the American Library Association of 2021 was Gender Queer by by Maya Kobau and it has been banned and challenged and restricted because of its LGBTQ plus content and while this may seem expected during this time of uh, uncertainty surrounding LGBTQ student rights in schools it the in contrast the the top challenged book in 2010 was a picture book called And Tango Makes Three by Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson. And similarly, this book was in this book was the number one challenge book in 2010. And yet it shares the same themes 
of um, LGBTQ plus families and relationships. And so what we're seeing now and what we've seen back then is that these book bans are have been a precursor to the anxieties which has allowed the model 22 policies to take place and can be correlated to the election of Glenn Youngkin. Um, so basically, I, I don't think that they want to see queer representation in schools, despite the numerous benefits it has for queer youth and heterosexual relationships. They've always been depicted in schools. Like just look at a Disney movie, for example, right? Yes. It's, it, from a young age, right? And all the time I hear um, adults telling like little kids, like even three or four years old, when they're talking to someone of a different gender, like, oh, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend? So the sexualization that we see with uh, in terms of heterosexuality, is okay. But when queer people want representation, we're talking about just recognizing that we exist, right? Yes. And that is okay. Because if I had had that when I was younger, that would have done amazing things. And I think it's a beautiful thing that we're seeing in many parts of this country where we recognize that queer people exist and we don't have to be in the closet because that's a very dangerous and very horrible place to be. And people just don't have a full grasp of what the reality is. How do you think Yunkin's campaign strategy impacted his response to issues that would perhaps play into an actual daily voter's life? And, you know, this is something that he, you know, claimed on the campaign trail. Do you think this statement in today's current climate is somewhat hypocritical? And is the model 2022 policy effectively delivering on Yunkin's campaign promises? In my interview with Spencer Haydery, we came to the same conclusion that the Yunkin administration and its subsidiaries are being hypocritical in the sense that they believe that policies like the model 22 policies are adequate in uh, playing a role in uh, playing a significant role in impacting what voters care about. But in reality, they are inadequate in dealing with these issues. Because of this fear, there is is very removed from people's daily actual lives, right? Right. He's he, they're appealing to parents and, and who are the voters. Parents aren't the ones being forced to use bathrooms inconsistent with their gender identity. I think this is very very far removed from people's daily lives, except to the extent where they're worried that their child might be trans and they're uncomfortable with that. This new assertion of power by the Young administration and by state government over aspects of education in the K-12 system is a long time coming, as we can see with the trend of the most challenged books um, for over the past 10 to 12 years in the United States. But the reason why we're seeing it now is especially because of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of the increased anxieties from parents and communities surrounding what their children are learning in schools. You've been discussing um, throughout this interview how these policies could potentially impact LGBTQ plus students. But speaking more broadly, how will these model policies um, affect these students in other ways, perhaps mentally and socially? Yeah, so I also discussed this question with Spencer Hayderi, and uh, one of the main things that 
we came in conclusion with was that these policies are hostile to LGBTQ plus youth, uh, no matter what grade they are, no matter if they're in elementary school, middle school, or high school. When queer people are already facing disproportionate rates of homelessness, familial rejection, abuse, the list goes on, like higher rates of depression and anxiety because of, you know, the way society treats trans people. And you're denying them, you know, the, the opportunity to identify with themselves and to choose who they are out to for their own safety and limiting every chance to socially transition, which the science says is very beneficial for trans people. And think about it from a practical aspect, right? Um, uh, you know, if a cis woman is forced to use a men's bathroom, would you feel comfortable with that? Like, no, just think about it from even a practical point of view. You're, you're forcing someone to conform in a way that isn't you. Definitely these students are going to feel isolated. They're going to feel upset. They're going to feel invalidated because they, because uh, these policies have taken away their own autonomy in school and their own identity and the ability to express themselves in the way that they wish to in schools. Thank you for elaborating on that point for us. And to round off this episode, I wanted to end where everything really began with Yunkin by asking what are some other anxieties that impacted students in the K through 12 school system and possibly bolstered Yunkin on the campaign trail resulting in his election win? Yeah, so last year, um, Loudoun County, Virginia was rocked by a series of protests, specifically around the teaching of critical race theory or CRT. Um, the school board responded saying that students were being taught equity and not critical race theory. And so these similar anxieties surrounding what students are learning in schools is part of the reason for Youngkin's campaign win is because he was he, he was able to appeal to uh, suburban bases and and parents. And so um, these anxieties that have have these anxieties surrounding not only um, how students can express themselves in schools, but what content they're learning and what history they're learning in schools is part of the reason why he was so successful. See the trends and opposition between critical race theory, any sort of queer representation in schools playing out across the country. And what Glenn Yonke did is he really weaponized that. There's also this attack on critical race theory that um, I've heard no Republican um, being able to define, or even when they do, uh, is very inconsistent <laughs> with one another. Um, so it's not just an attack on queer people, it's an attack on uh, essentially anyone from a marginalized background. Um, and book bans, as terrible as they are, they're, they're not the worst thing that they're trying to do to us, right? They're, they're setting up what I see as transgenocide on a national level. They're, they're trying to ban gender-affirming care, which is medically necessary for trans kids at a national level, right? They're going state by state. Florida and Texas are doing very horrible things. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what the vast majority of gender-affirming care is for youth. 
that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer. And thank you to Apal for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. If you want more information on how to be involved with our organization, please go to theacqc.com.